Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. I envy you, Larry, because I'm a baseball fan, uh, a tad younger than you are, and I didn't have the opportunity to see some of the immortals like you, uh, such as Jackie Robinson. So we're going to get into that. The Braves, what was it like to be a Braves fan in Boston in the late 40s, early 50s? Well, I think it was very good. Um, the Red Sox, of course, have always commanded the most attention. I mean, after all, they had Babe Ruth. In the first part of the 20th century, they won, I don't know, five world championships. And the Red Sox in the first part of the 21st century emulated them. They won four. So that um, Ted Williams, the Red Sox, and the great players they had were uh, paramount in Boston. But to be a Braves fan was okay because the Braves had a lot of great players in their prime. They also had a habit of getting great players past their prime who went to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And uh, they yeah. um, uh, they were under the manager, uh, the ownership of Emil Fuchs, Judge Emil Fuchs, F-U-C-H-S, who um, figures in some of these stories. I think he's a Jewish guy uh, who. Uh, bought the Braves, and he was the fellow that owned them during the 30s and I think part of the 40s. There still is a Boston Braves Association, you know. Um, My dad's a member, yeah, uh, believe it or not. Yeah, so am I. And the fans that yeah. the fans that uh, that joined that are people who, it was, you know, it was like town and gown. I mean, you know, the Red Sox were, ta- uh, were gown and, and, and the Braves were town. I love it. I you love know, that. and, and, That's a great it, description. Yeah. Right. And so you could, I could identify with both. I mean, sure, I liked the way the Red Sox played and Ted Williams was unbelievable. There was nobody like him. But don't forget the Braves won the, won the pennant in 1948 and, you know, except for Except for uh, a few things happening one way or another, they they could have won the World Series. They had great players. Uh, Bob Elliott, uh, the third baseman, was the MVP that year. And you know, I I saw so many ball games, uh, Jordan, that if I'm sitting in the box seats or even in the bleachers, I can tell a home run the minute it strikes the bat. Now, were you watching from the knot hole at all? Uh, yeah, well, I wasn't a member of the Nottoll gang, but, you know, you could get into the Braves field in various different ways. You could turn styles to get into Braves field. Mm-hmm. You could, they let uh, kids in with their father. So I and many other people, young guys, uh, went up to a fellow that was going in by himself. <laughs> and, and, you know, he said, can I be your son? Oh, that's hysterical. That's great. <laughs> and you get into a... Oh, they, and and it was you know to be a Braves fan was a really a lot of fun. There was a lady who used to sit down in the front of the grandstand by the name of Lolly Hopkins. Now Lolly Hopkins had a megaphone, and she would she was at every game, and she used to shout out at the opposing players various things trying to rattle them. So I, being you know I, uh, somebody who talks to people, talk to people all over. And, so, and I'm like 12, 11, 12. I would go over and sit next to Lolly Hopkins and talk to her. And 
she would turn with her megaphone and shout at me. No, I'm kidding. So that- <laughs> <laughs> Those characters exist, but they're not as colorful as they were back then. I, I love that. Uh, it, let's talk about some of the the, uh, the ball players, though, that you were able to witness. And let's let's talk about Jackie Robinson, number 46. Well, you know, I'll tell you, I, I went to see Jackie Robinson the year he came up with the Dodgers in 1947. And I went with my with my uncle, my mother's brother, Selwyn, and Selwyn graduated Harvard, be, uh, studied economy, went into the uh, army, and read uh, reconnaissance photographs in the uh, African theater, where Irwin Rommel, the general uh, who Desert, was Desert Fox, as he was known, yeah, right, he was a German general, but not a Nazi. I mean, they ultimately. When he tried, when he joined the group trying to kill Hitler, they gave him a choice. Uh, when two guys came to his house and they said, "Either take this pill, uh, we'll give you a state funeral, but if you don't take this pill, you're going to be prosecuted as a, as a war, as mm-hmm. a uh, traitor." Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Rommel was a great soldier, but in any event, uh, he, my uncle, Sel read reconnaissance photographs in that theater of the war. So we went together and we sat in the left field pavilion. And I remember in that game, Jackie Robinson slid into second base in a huge cloud of dust and was safe. I don't know whether it was a stolen base or a double or something like that. But in any event, it was pretty plain that he was a spirited ball player. But I didn't realize, of course, the um, you know that he would become so immortalized and so famous in American history because you might say— that the advent of Jackie Robinson into the major leagues in 1947, predating as it did uh, the things that uh, Martin Luther King did uh, and the things that happened in the South in the late 50s and 60s, really Jackie Robinson was uh, maybe, uh, even though he was conservative in some ways and uh, was closer to the Republican side, still um, his his effect on American society yeah. was immense. I've got a question that's more local. When I don't know if you recall, but was there a sense that there were people not too happy with Jackie Robinson in Boston seeing a black man on the field? Do you recall anything like that? Well, I think it must have been prevalent. Um, I don't recall anything specifically. Um, and uh, But look, I mean, um, there were s- several Dodger players Oh, yeah. Who were objected to his presence, especially Dixie Walker, who was a very fine outfielder. And But the other thing was that Pee Wee Reese, who came from Kentucky and is another Hall of Famer, and at first objected, and his family was saying to Pee Wee, you know, how can you associate with this black guy? They became a terrific second-base shortstop combination, and they were friends. And Pee Wee said that his father, that, that, he, that his attitude toward blacks really changed with the with Jackie Robinson coming along. And also, um, the uh, uh, I, I, think, um, I think that the relationship of Jackie Robinson with Hank Greenberg is another one that uh, is special because in his first season, you know, Greenberg, Jackie's last season, Jackie's first season and Hank's last season coincided. 1947. That was the year that Hank Greenberg played with the Pirates and became friendly with Ralph Kiner, and Kiner advanced uh, under under Greenberg's tutelage to become a six or seven time home run champion and another Hall of Fame player. But um, when he got to first base on one occasion 
into the season, Hank Greenberg, who had his own troubles with anti-Semitism right. in the 30s right. and had fistfights over it and so forth, said to Jackie Robinson, he said, you know, Jackie, you're doing great. I mean, how you keep yourself together, I don't know. You had a lot of challenges. I went through the same stuff, and uh, I, yeah, I, I want you to know that if you need any help or anything like that, you can count on me. I'd be happy to talk to you anytime. Jackie Robinson used to cry literally cry when he told that story because uh, uh, you know he, he, did, he did a great you know he he got so much nasty stuff I don't know about the answer to your question no I have no memory of yeah. somebody's but, but we know what happened but we know what happened yeah, and what I do think is that if he didn't get support from white people whether they were southerners um, like uh, Pee Wee Reese or Jewish players on other teams like Hank Greenberg, he could have quit. I mean, because there was yep. it was tough. Yeah, it was, it was dangerous, not just tough. I mean, they were throwing at him. They were trying to hurt him, uh, fans and players. Let's talk about some of the other characters uh, that you hung around with, because there's a bunch of names here in the in in the memoir that are coming forward. Well, I'll tell you the press box story. The press box story is it has to do with uh, my one-eyed Conley days. I, you know, I, I, I'm a great gate crasher. Lois keeps saying to me, don't crash gates. <laughs> You're going to get in trouble. You know, I'll tell you something. When I would crash a gate, like wherever, um, I don't want to talk about There's wherever. an art form to this, though, I must say, and you, you're a master at it. Well, you know, I, it, it's exciting because it's not just money that is driving me to crash a gate. It's the adventure. It's the thrill, right, of yeah. get, getting to do it. Yeah, it's the thrill. I mean, I've crashed gates at some pretty amazing places, and I've made terrific friends. I mean, some of the places—well, here's a story. comes a little later. Kathy Jeunesse was my legal assistant for many years. Her husband, Mike Jeunesse, uh, this has to do with that story at the beginning of my memoir about a Rohard— um, and uh, a rowing crew that went yes. to. So anyway, um, she comes into the office one day and she says, you know, I'd like to have to week off because uh, my husband is uh, taking his rowing crew to to take part in the uh, gig championships on the Silly Isles off Land's End in England. And I said to her uh, that, uh, Kathy, I think that uh, that sounds like a great adventure. Do you think I could come along? And, uh, and you did? I did. <laughs> and it was a great adventure. You in the wild, you know, on the, and the Silly Isles are situated off the English coast and pretty wild out there. And um, gig racing is, you know, a few guys in a boat. I mean, it's, there's a whole history about gig racing. We should talk about that another time. But anyway, um, when the gig races were over, um, Mike as his name was, Mike Janess, her husband, <clears throat> stayed on the Silly Isles for an extra day to make plans to come there again for the championships at a later date. So so I said, well, look, Kathy, I said, you know, you're in London all by yourself waiting for Mike. I said, why don't we spend the day together? And uh, she may have never had a day like that uh, because I'm a little crazy. Um, we we went to a, to a rehearsal 
of a, a Mozart rehearsal in one of the oldest churches in London. We visited a Jewish temple and just wa- you know walked in sight unseen and they talked to them and they showed us around. Saw the older gentleman playing backgammon or whatever it was down in the recesses of the temple. The main thing, though, was we went to the law courts and the, as a, and the um, you know, where barristers, you know, go Lincoln's Inn and stuff like that. And I had been there before, but um, we, were just, we were, you know, we were going around London. I, and at night, took her to see Phantom of the Opera and um, where the chandelier comes down. And after a French meal, I wanted to treat Kathy right because she was a wonderful helper for many years and a great person and one of those women in my life who was very persuasive, taught me a lot about women and how they think. She was, she was great. And we're still very friendly. So anyway, um, I got. she came to me when she was 19. She just retired at 65. Oh, that's awesome. That's from another great. job. And they loved her. I loved her. And then when she went there, they I said, they're quickly going to find out that uh, you're the best person in the office. And she rose in the ranks. And, Gate crashing is a pastime? Um, well, yeah. We'll, we'll wait until I tell you the story with her. So on this trip around London, we come to the law courts, and I could see through the window of the law courts building that there was a party going on. So I said, Kathy, and I said, I made a great friend. So I said, why don't we go in? She says, well, how can we go in? I said, yeah, follow me. <laughs> we walked in, and uh, they said, uh, oh. So they were serving canopies and drinks and all that stuff. So we just walked in. So... Um, and I, so somebody said, uh, hey, it's a couple of new people. There have been a lot of people there. A couple of new people. Who are you? So I said, well, I'm an American visiting England, and this is my legal assistant, and uh, I, um, uh, I'm a lawyer myself. Oh, you're a lawyer. One thing led to another, and we, were, and we were talking to all these people, and they sat us down. They gave us drinks, and, you know, people would come out of no place. I just heard that you're a lawyer in, London, in, in Boston. And I was in Boston last year. Tell me a little about the place I visited. You know, I, so it became a very nice visit. And we, we talked to all these people. And Kathy had a wonderful time. I had a wonderful time. We stayed there about an hour. And that's a gate crashing episode. And well, the one, see, when you talk about the thrill of gate crashing, because you know that something is going to happen that, that it never happened before. And you know, few people do it because it just is. It's it's not proper. So, what happens in in terms of baseball and gate crashing in the early days with the press box? What's that story all about? Well, I'm 12 years old, so the press box is where all the all the the writers get together, sports writers. Sure. So I walked up the the. Uh, it was like a, a fire escape. You know, you walk up, and there's the press box. So I said. I'll go in the press box. <laughs> and you just wandered in as a 12-year-old kid? I wandered in, and nobody said anything, so I sat down. <laughs> I'm watching the game. I remember they were playing the St. Louis Cardinals, so that um, and uh, they had some good players. So, um, so, so finally somebody says, who's this kid? I heard him. So I don't know. Hey, kid, what are you doing here? I said, I just wanted to see what the game looked like from up here in the press box. Hey, kid, do you want a ham and cheese sandwich? <laughs> I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> and um, 
And I remember Solly Hemus, who was uh, an infielder for the Cardinals, hit a home run that day. You don't forget that experience being in the press box. No, it was my first experience. And all these, you know, they were, at that time, they were, you know, mostly Irish guys. And um, so that I had a lot of fun. I mean, uh, I really like to meet people, Jordan. And I think that the reason that I wrote, I'm writing this memoir is, uh, you know, so the main theme of it is friendship. Friendship, friends can come from any place. And uh, who am I to write a book about classical music and some of the great musicians that I spoke to? Uh, and the same thing in baseball. Who am I to speak to Jerry Reinsdorf one day uh, and uh, Bud Selig the next day? all of this in Phoenix, Arizona, and to Al Clark, the guy who was the, an umpire for 25 years in Major League Baseball, who Selig and Reinsdorf probably despise, but whom I loved, who went to jail for selling phony baseball stuff, and but he's actually a, a terrific Jew. And he, I said to myself, not only do I have to have women in this book, which I do, mm. American Jews in America's game, but I also have to have a criminal. Why not? Why not? I, so I think it's this, it's just part of my open attitude towards life. It's just that I, you know, I'm not an adventurer in the sense of wanting to climb Mount Everest. Um, and I'm not an adventurer who's going to jump out of a plane, you know, like some of these people do for the thrill of that. I get my thrills in a little bit safer ways. Somebody can say to me, "Hey, you know, you're hey, Larry, you're you're out of your mind." I mean, no no sensible person, let alone a uh, uh, a lawyer, does this kind of stuff. But I do it. Keeps. I never wanted to be a judge because I didn't want I didn't want the the element of uh, of not being seen as a public figure. To interfere with my life. Uh, or your fun, quite frankly. Yeah, my fun. I yeah. don't blame you. That's the secret to staying young. I have one more question about the Braves experience, uh, and you have a couple of other folks you wanted to mention. Oh, absolutely. Some of these are priceless. But here's, before you get to them, um, were you bereft? Was it a terrible day when they when they packed up and left for, what, Milwaukee, I guess? Was it, was it like the Dodgers in Brooklyn, in other words? No, because the Red Sox remained, but um, but I think um, I think I liked the Braves for a lot of reasons. Um, I remember one of my last memories of the Braves was that uh, Eddie Matthews was a great third baseman for the Braves, a Hall of Fame player, hit over 500 home runs. It, the the next year when they were in Milwaukee, that was the year that Hank Aaron came to play for them, but. Before Eddie Matthews ever had a major league at bat, he played in the City Series against the Red Sox the year before they took off, and he hit a ball that the center fielder cut with his back against the 420 marker. And um, and as I said before, the Red, uh, the the Braves had a lot of memorable players, like uh, Paul Wayner, Big Poison, and Lloyd Wayne, a Little Poison, the great one, probably the greatest brother act in Major League Baseball. I mean, Paul Wayner was uh, 
I think his highest average was like 388 or something like that. And he had over 3,000 hits and made his 3,000th hit playing for the Braves after his salad days with Pittsburgh were over, played in 1927 against Babe Ruth in the World Series. And Lloyd, his little brother, had, I don't know, 2,800 hits, and they, they both were terrific. And they, they had guys like Billy Herman, who was a great second baseman, and Earl Averill, a great home run hitter, guys that um, <clears throat> had... And, and one guy that really stays in my memory, do you ever hear the name Ernie Lombardi? Yes, absolutely. Well, Ernie that. Lombardi, he, he was the slowest guy ever. <laughs> and he was one of the greatest hitters ever. Now, he would hit balls so hard. I can, it seemed like every time he got up, he would hit the ball like a rifle shot. And there were plenty of home runs, too. But he would hit ball. They would play him like in the, in the outfield, practically. A shortstop would be like, 25 feet beyond the infield marker, you know, where the dirt is. Mm. And he would hit these terrific shots that they would get and throw to first base and get them. But still, he won two batting championships, one of them for the Braves in the one year he played for them, had a lifetime average of 306. And literally, this guy probably would have had a lifetime average of 360 if he could run like a normal person. If he was in the DH era, he probably would have had a, a no, another extension in his career. And, of course, he would have been a $20 million player with that kind of average. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, he was a very respect, and he was defensively, he was very good. Talk about DH. Ted Williams, in his final season, hit 29 home runs in 320 times at bat. What was he, at 43 years old? 42. 42. Now, 29 home runs in 320 times at bat is unbelievable. That's like a home run every 11 times. And um, he uh, he batted, I don't know, 315 or 18. Um, there was no such thing at that point for Ted Williams getting an infield hit uh, because he had slowed down. But two seasons before that, uh, three seasons in 1957, you know, he batted 406 in 1941. Right. But he batted 388 at the age of 38. And you know, I think maybe he had four or five infield hits. You know, like four, three or four more hits, he would have been a 400 hitter again. Nobody's hit 400 since he hit. Nope, nope. Incredible, incredible. Uh, you know, I think that um, there was a guy in Brookline named Charles Kickham. Probably seen the sign in the Coolidge Corner of Kickham Law Offices. Yeah. Now Charlie Kickham was born in St. Elizabeths, about three or four days apart from JFK, and the families knew each other because the Kickham family was well known in Brookline, and at that time, the Kennedy family lived in Brookline, and he and Jack were both altar boys at St. Aidan's Church, uh, in North Brookline, which now doesn't exist anymore, but it's made into condominiums. And they played ball at Still Street Playground, which is where Pleasant Street cuts from Coolidge Corner over to Commonwealth Avenue. And um, so I, when I interviewed Charlie Kickham for my for my television program, and, and his story is in my book, Voices of Brookline, I... Um, uh, I asked him all about that. And I said, well, who, Charlie, who is the better ball player between you and JFK? And, he, you know, Charlie became president of the Massachusetts Bar Association. Ah. So who was the—and we all looked up to him because he made, like, 
when we were young lawyers, he made eighty, a hundred thousand dollars a year, which is like four or five hundred thousand now. So that, um, uh, so he said, well, he said, give it to him. He was the president. <laughs> 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 so anyway, Charlie Kickham, he used to see me riding around Brookline on my bike, and he probably thought, what? Why nuts? Um, the funny thing is that uh, I decided that the second guest on my program should be Charlie Kickham. Now, he was a very austere guy and uh, very serious and a good lawyer. Um, I did a lot of work in the municipal field. So, Charlie, uh, I went over to his office and prepared him for the program. So he told me about Braves Field, and you know he lived on Crown and Shield Road, which is a stone's throw from Braves Field. So he, like the rest of us, when he was a kid, used to go over there, so uh, and get in whatever way he could, um, even though he was very licit, in, as opposed to illicit as a lawyer. <laughs> so that um, he uh, he tells the story of going in one day, one morning. There's nobody around, and he walks into the into the office area. And there's Judge Fuchs, whom I spoke of before. And he asked Judge Fuchs for a baseball. And Judge Fuchs said, well, I don't have any. He will come tomorrow morning. He went the next morning, and Judge Fuchs gave him a couple of baseballs. Then when he became a lawyer, Fuchs called him. Didn't know who he was because he was the, considered the best lawyer in Brooklyn. And he had a case involving Brooklyn, so he calls Charlie Kickham. And Charlie Kickham says, you know, Judge Fuchs, we have a little bit of a history because— Way back when I was like, you know, 12 years old, you gave me a couple of baseballs. Um, this is the kind of stuff that Brookline, that we who lived so close to Bray's Field experienced. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you one about Herb Goodwin. He used to be the judge in the Brookline court whose brother was the speechwriter for JFK. Oh, yeah, Richard Goodwin. Richard Goodwin. Who was married to— uh, Doris Kearns. Yeah, Doris Kearns. I mean, all this stuff fits together. So— um, so Charlie Kickham also strolled into the ballpark in the 1936 All-Star Game, which was played at Braves Field. Mm. So as I put it, I said, even Charlie Kickham played a part in the demise of the Boston Braves. You know, getting into the ballpark that's, for nothing. That's a great story. So one of you know, they did so much better. I mean, they they did their attendance was way down. It was it was a wise decision. Yeah. To take them out of town. Now, when it comes to um, Herb Goodwin, Herb Goodwin and uh, he became the judge of the municipal court. He passed away a couple of years ago. But um, one of the one of the at the end of every game, all the kids would come pouring out and they'd leap on the ball players. So they all wanted to leap on. Do you ever hear of Tommy Holmes? Oh, of course, yeah. Well, Tommy Thanks, Holmes was Brady. a great player for the Braves, and he, in one season he was exceptional. Um, and he batted, I don't know, 350, and set the record for consecutive games with a hit at 37, broken after that by Pete Rose. But he was a wonderful player. So all the kids would try and get to, to him. Herb Goodwin finally gave up. He would jump on the back of a center fielder who was only in the major leagues three or four seasons, came from the South with a, a name that would fit any Confederate soldier, Carden Gillingwater. <laughs> I mean, if you could find somebody named Carden Gillingwater in New England, Good luck. you'd be lucky. Yeah. So anyway, Gillingwater had one great season where he had 24 outfield assists. Um, and that's a lot for an outfielder. But, uh, he, but uh, Herb used to jump on his back and get his autograph. And 
And so finally, I did this a lot. And he said, you know, you jump on my back a lot. He said, how come? Um, he said, uh, well, he said, uh, I, um, you know, I can't uh, get on the backs of some of these other guys, so, so I, I picked you. And uh, then he said to, uh, I think he said, I tried to, um, to jump on the back of a, one of those St. Louis players, and I couldn't get on his back either. Who was that? Stan Musial? <laughs> <laughs> he, he aimed high, didn't he? <laughs> and uh, so uh, Gillenwater was very taken with that. There was a kid that lived uh, close to me on Gibbs Street in Brookline, Marty Sacklad, became a dentist. Mm-hmm. So Marty doesn't even remember this. Uh, he's still around. He came to my office to speak to me seven or eight years ago. I don't know how he's doing these days. But Marty was a uh, good field, no hit. Um, but he was he was a good ball player, so he couldn't understand that one game we were at, why Casey Stingle, who managed the Braves during the war, um, didn't order a sacrifice and let the guy hit away. So um, we waited outside the third base uh, grandstand until Casey came out limping because he has, he had suffered a terrible accident in Kenmore Square where his leg was broken in several places. He always walked with a slight limp after that. And this was when the Braves were horrible, and everybody was wondering whether um, the... um, uh, was wondering, you know, what what would happen to them and to Stingle. But Marty asked him the question, and Stingle answered him in Stingleese, which was impossible to follow as to why he did it, little knowing, little we did we know that this locution on his part would become famous and that he would manage the the Yankees to, I don't know, eight or nine championships. Right, right. Uh, wow, knows? great story. There's one other name here I wanted to ask you about because I love the name, uh, Huck Betts. Huck Betts? It sounds like uh, a Damon Runyon character. Who's that? Well, Huck, this has to do with Sumner Kaplan. Okay. Do you know Sumner? Did you know That Sumner? name is familiar to me, but... Uh... Sumner Kaplan was really the uh, precursor to Mike Dukakis in Brookline politics. Okay. Now, Mike, now, uh, Sumner Kaplan was... I, I wrote a story about him in Voices of Brookline. He was everything. He became a probate court judge. He was an army general uh, in the reserve. Uh, he was a great father, great uh, husband... He was a Brookline selectman. He was a representative in the general court. Uh, he did a zillion different things, but he was a great politician, and he was the one that sort of groomed Mike Dukakis. Later, they had somewhat of a falling out, and um, I tried at one point when my book came out to uh, have you know a manager reconciliation. But at the time of Huck Betts, which was not he was not Mookie. By a long shot. Huck was a reserve catcher or something like that. But someone tells the story that they used to go up to Cleveland Circle, that playground out there, mm-hmm. over just over the Boston line. Mm-hmm. And Huck Betts, who lived in that area, used to come over after the game and play ball with them. And they were thrilled. There's a major league player who was playing ball with them. So someone tells the story about... Huck Betts, and uh, Huck Betts was a you know, marginal major leaguer at best. Mike Dukakis, one more story. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, he was a catcher, right? Is that right? Yeah. You know, he, he had a brother, Steelian. Uh, 
good Greek name. Yeah. Okay. And Stelian was in my class at high school. So they were three years apart. So I didn't know Mike as a freshman because he was undersized. We don't want any more Carlos stories, do we? No, 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 no. We're not going there. No, but as a matter of fact, <laughs> that was the class he was in. So Okay. So what happened is that uh, uh, I think um, Mike um, – so the story you want is on. No, I, I thought I read. Well, my, yeah, yeah, a, a they they were they were. A, uh, maybe this is where Mike learned field generalship. He was the catcher, and Stelian was the pitcher. Now Stelian, unfortunately, died fairly young. A very nice guy, pretty very much unlike Mike. Um, but they, um, but Mike played a lot of baseball, and his mother, would, who came from the old country, wanted him to learn something about American ways. What better than baseball? And, and she, she, uh, she took the brothers when they were like four to see the Red Sox when Jimmy Fox was with them. And Mike tells the story that uh, he says my mother didn't know baseball from a from a uh, a broom, <laughs> but uh, he says but she took us out and I Jimmy Fox hit a line drive off the left field fence. I can still hear the whack of the ball against the fence to this day. And he remembers some game that they won with playing another another grammar school uh, when he, he was the catcher and Stadium was the pitcher by 27 to nothing or wow. something. So that, uh, you know, played ball. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRutman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Rutman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life.